All right, get your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're still in our series, You Asked For It. You Asked For It. And this is where I'm speaking about topics and questions that you specifically asked for. And uh, this has been a wild series so far. Would you admit if you've been here, we kind of started with divorce and remarriage as believers in the church. Um, And then we talked about marriage in general. That was kind of fun. And then last week we talked about sex. That was fun. And... um, (laughs) Praise the Lord for that. And so uh, this week, we have probably one of the hardest topics right here before Thanksgiving. You would think we'd be talking about giving thanks or breaking bread or the pilgrims or something. Um, and no, no, we're not. We're going to talk about the LGBT community, homosexuals, transgenders. There are now 63 genders, as I understand it. Um, yeah, you should Google it, or maybe not. I don't know. But um, there, are, there are over 63 genders now um, listed as, as genders. And, um, and so we got a lot of questions about that. And uh, so the, the question I'm going to specifically speak to is how should the church um, respond to or minister to the LGBT community? And I think that's a great question to ask, actually. And that's why I, that's the question I just chose. I said, I'm going to take the whole time and I'm just going to answer this question. And with that, I'll answer a lot of other questions that were asked, because I think that the church needs to know a couple of things. We need to know what what we stand on, and we need to know how to stand on it. And I think fundamentally the church a lot of times kind of knows or has known what it stands on. It has no clue how to stand on it. Our methodology is jacked. Okay, maybe you... Let me draw you a picture. A big sign that says God hates fags is not how we stand on God's truth. That's a bad methodology. It's hypocritical. It's hateful. It's bigotry. That's not the methodology of Jesus. And so I'll get to that in a minute. So let me just say a few things first as I get started. Number one, let me say this. Um, if you're in this service and, and you, are, you would identify as anything other than heterosexual because with how many genders and, and you know, that's the easiest way for me to try to say that because I've learned new terms like pansexual, asexual, all types of things that I didn't even know personally. And so if you identify as anything other than heterosexual, you need to know something. Number one, you need to know that I love you and you matter to me. You need to know that God loves you and you matter to him. And you need to know that this church loves you and you matter to us. And there's a place for you here, whether you ever agree with us or not. Amen. There will always be a place for you here. And you need to know that. And um, I also want to say, because I was interviewed on this topic and they, um, <clears throat> they were asking me questions. I said, let me give you some framework that I will work within so that you'll understand something. I'm an evangelical pastor. I believe in the authority of Scripture as it has been understood for thousands of years. And I believe that if we take from it or add to it or change it or manipulate it, the Bible speaks to a judgment that comes. So you need to understand that I'm going to give you the opinions that I believe are very clear from Scripture. And so you just need to have that filter. But with that, I'll have the approach of Jesus. And I'll explain that in just a minute. I think also I'd just like to say no matter where you're at on this issue, maybe you could give me a little grace because I don't think you'd want to take this on. Because if you speak on this issue to an audience of over a 1,000 people, there's a good chance somebody's probably going to disagree. And probably some of the most, I'll say this, mean-spirited and hate-filled mail that I've ever gotten is when I've spoken on this issue. And some of the worst things I've ever been called. (laughs) I had to look it up, see what it was. But anyways, uh, so so maybe just a little grace, and let's kind of work this out together. And um, I think God, God God can speak here. Amen? And so how does the church um, respond to, minister to the LGBT community? Three words. I'll give you three words. The first one is this. I think the church needs to repent. I think this is really where the church needs to start. Um, I think the church missed an awesome opportunity in the 80s when AIDS became an epidemic. And what the church did so eloquently is we huddled in our churches. We hurled judgment at people who were suffering and declared they were suffering 
because God was against them because they were in sin. And that really worked out well. And that's sarcasm. <laughs> um, it, was, it was horrific, really. We, we, we separated ourselves. We became religious bigots. Um, we became religiously charged cultures of bias. And we became a place where suffering people who disagreed with us were not welcome. And I don't think any of that is congruent with the ministry of Jesus. And so I think we as a church, we have an opportunity. And let me just say this. You may be sitting here, you know, and, and I announced the topic, and you're like, Ethel, get your purse. Good God. Didn't know we are going to talk about this. Just want to give thanks. Here's what I want to say is um, that, that this, this, um, this affects all of us. And for most of us, including me, this holiday season, I will be with family who openly embrace a lifestyle other than a heterosexual marriage. And I will love them, and I will talk to them, and, and you will be, many of you will be in that same situation. So whether, there's some, whether you think you know anyone or not, most people nowadays will come in contact with this. And even if you don't, you're going to raise children that need to know the truth. You have to speak to your own family. You have to educate your own family on what you feel like is God's standard and why, and how to live in this world that has all types of things going on in it. So this affects all of us. I mean, we, I was watching The Voice the other night with uh, Mariah. Mariah likes to watch, she likes music, and so we were watching The Voice. And they're introducing this candidate, very nice young man, very well-spoken, could sing like an angel. And we're watching this interview, and Briggs is over there, and he's playing some kind of video game because that's what my boys tend to do. They don't know life can happen outside of a device. And so, so he's on the couch playing, and Mariah and I are watching The Voice, and here's this young man, I think from Houston, Texas, I believe, and, and uh, just very well-spoken, very nice young man. And they start telling his story, and they start talking about how he's a worship pastor. And I thought, how cool. No wonder. God, this guy's so anointed. And then he starts telling his story. He's like, yeah, I'm a worship pastor on Sunday mornings. On Saturday nights, I'm a cross-dresser. I'm a drag queen. And I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And, um, and so, and so, and so like, okay, uh, praise the Lord. And uh, so now I'm explaining to my 11-year-old what that means. And, uh, and to Mariah, who kind of had an idea, and, and at the same time saying, hey, this is what that means, and, and this is not a value that we would hold to, but this is a beautiful human being that God loves very much. And we don't, and this, frankly, I said, and we don't have to turn the show off because of his value system. Because, by the way, and all of you are saying, like, my God, I just turned it off. Okay then throw your whole TV out of your house. Okay, throw your whole TV out of your house if that's where your standard is. Because every show has all different lifestyles represented, all different innuendos, all different themes. And so if, if you're going to hypocrite Pharisee person, if that's what you're going to say to me before you hit send on that email, just know when I get it, I'm coming to your house. I'm grabbing your big plasma screen or LED screen or whatever from above your fireplace, and I'm putting it in my truck and taking it home with me. Praise the Lord. So I think the church, <laughs> I think we need to, I need to repent. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, Mark chapter two, verse 16, he said, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, time out. How did they define they were sinners? Well, in biblical times, in biblical days, it was by the law of God, the rule of God, the standard of God. And so if you did not hold to the clear standard of God, at this time, Jesus had not died and resurrected. And so this was still, they were still under the law of Moses. Okay, so if you didn't fully embrace the law of Moses, you were a sinner. That was just how it was done. So they were saying these are sinners because they don't they don't hold to the law of God, and 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 they don't claim to. By the way, and so he saw them eating with sinners, and then I love the fact that it puts tax collectors with the sinners because that's personally how I feel. And so um, <laughs> and they they ask his disciples. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, hearing this, said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, and I'm not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. The irony is, Jesus knew everybody there was a sinner, it's just some of them knew it and some of them didn't. 
welcome to church. And so, um, and so here's, here's what Jesus was saying. Look at what, look at who he's eating with. Like who is God's favorite? Do you want to know who God's favorite is? Read Luke eight, Luke 15. Read the shepherd who lost one sheep out of a hundred, the widow who lost one coin out of 10 and the father who saw one son out of two leave home. And you're going to find out God's favorite is always what is lost. And here's what I'm going to say. If we're the church of Jesus, according to the lifestyle of Jesus, if we believe anyone is lost, those are the people we're going after with vigorous abandonment. Let me say it another way. If you think that, that people who hold to a lifestyle of homosexuality or gay or lesbianism or transgender or whatever, if you believe they're really lost, let me say it another way, then that's the people you take to dinner. That's the people you get involved in their life. That's the people you hang out with. Those are the people you serve and love. They're not the people you hide in a church and throw grenades at through social media. Maybe the church isn't supposed to be about church people at all. Maybe we're not supposed to care more about being the church than we care about the people we're called to reach. The church that Jesus would have pastored on a Sunday morning would have been a mixture of the aromas of Jack Daniels, marijuana, and anointing oil. The church that Jesus pastor would have been filled with pastors, parishioners, pimps, prostitutes, drug dealers, criminals, gamblers, addicts, and it would have contained adulterers, pornographers, heterosexuals, homosexuals, gays, lesbians, and those who are transgender. That's the church he would have. And then after it was over, he wouldn't have gone to eat with the pastors. He would have invited any one of the others that was a little bit different than the standard he held to. That's the one he said, hey, could I buy your lunch today? Just hang out with you. We serve a Jesus who will leave the 99 found to go searching for one that he feels is lost. And that's what the church really the church that, that he died for looks like. So I think we need to repent. I think we need to repent for seeing the issue and not seeing the people. I think we need to repent for caring more about our truth than caring about those people. I think we need to repent for fear of what we don't understand and repent for standing on our side of the issue, throwing rocks at the other side of the issue in an effort to protect the word of God as though God's word needed our defense. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever your word is settled in heaven, O God. God's word doesn't need our offense. According to Jesus, his word will still be standing when everything else isn't. And his word will be the word that judges us for all eternity. God's word is settled forever. We don't have to fear that a Supreme Court's decision somehow is going to change or weaken the word of God. You do understand that when the Supreme Court made their decision, they weren't reading the Bible or having a prayer meeting. They were listening to lobbyists, listening to court cases, listening to arguments and looking at the American people. And they felt their duty was to, to make law, which I personally don't agree that a court system should make law. I think there's a way to get, never mind. Anyways, they chose to make a law that they felt like better represented the American people and protected the rights of all Americans. And that was not based on prayer. It was not based on the word of God. It wasn't the Holy Spirit in the room helping and guiding them. It was just a humanistic approach to governing and ruling people. So for us to be over here like, oh my God, we need to understand America was founded on, on the word of God and godly principles, but it's not a Christian nation. I still think Christians hold a majority. Believers in Christ hold a majority. But I think when you look at our nation, if we sit here and say this is a Christian nation, no, it's a nation with a lot of Christians in it. But because we're all quiet and hiding in the churches, the nation's running wild without us. Because we would rather condemn actions than lead in righteousness. Oh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry if that offended you. So I think we need to repent.
um, repent for our own pride. And what I mean by that is repent for the pride of believing that because we are right, our words and methods don't matter. I think Jesus said it this way to the woman who was called in adultery against the standard of God, against the law of God, against the law of Moses. And Jesus said, hey, anyone here who has never sinned, you can cast the first stone. Because Jesus knows this. He knows that condemnation offers no hope and has no redemptive power. And so a church that condemns is a church that damns. And that's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come into this world to condemn this world. He came into this world, John 3, 16, 17, so that this world could be saved. And so condemnation is never the methodology of Jesus. Methodology, methodology of Jesus. So repent. We need to repent for not loving people as much as we love being right. So repent's the first word. Are you still breathing? Good. Then let's try the second word. The second word is love. Repent and then love. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now watch verse 39. A second, watch this, is equally important. Do you see the word equally? <clears throat> because I think sometimes we look at this and say, I have to love God and I'm going to do my best to love people. Like, I'm required to love God, and I'm going to try real hard. But it says it's equally important. In fact, John, John says it this way. Jesus said it's equally important to love your neighbor as yourself. John said it this way. If you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God at all. And in fact, the way we know you love God is the way we see you love people. I was asked in an interview my opinion of the LGBT community. I wasn't trying to be coy or a smart aleck, no matter what you may think of me. <laughs> but they said, what is your opinion of the LGBT community? I said, my opinion is they are people. And they said, could you clarify? I said, essentially, they are human beings. <laughs> and I said, I believe this. I think to elevate them above is sin, and I think to demote them below is sin. I think if they are less than people, because of the group that they identify as or claim to be, I think we've sinned. If we make them less than us, we've sinned. But also, if we elevate their cause above humanity, we've sinned. They're not greater than us because they claim to be different than us, and they are not less than us because they claim to be different to different us. They are people the same way we are people, the same way everyone is people. Every person is a person. We are all people. We are humans. The Constitution says... We're all given the same rights, and the Bible says that God's not a respecter of persons. We're all equal people, and to change us to elevate below or demote below is both wrong. Amen. So I'm not putting their cause up there as some great cause, and I'm not demoting them as less than because of their cause. They are people, and they're welcome to hold to whatever cause they want, but that doesn't make them superior or inferior. They are people. And because they're people, they're our neighbors. And Jesus said, love your neighbors as yourself. So who's your neighbor? Well, Jesus tells a story about this good Samaritan. There's this Jewish guy. He gets jacked on a road. That's a loose on a bridge translation. <laughs> he gets beat down. <laughs> and and uh, a priest comes and says, Oop, I'm not getting close to him. And a Levite comes. He's very religious, so he can't touch someone that's all beat up. And then this Samaritan comes, which Jews hated Samaritans. There's this racial issue, cultural issue, all this stuff. And the Samaritan takes care of him because, and Jesus says, he's a neighbor. So what is a neighbor? Well, the word neighbor actually means near. Who's your neighbor? It's the person near to you. And it has nothing to do with race, nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with orientation or how they identify, nothing to do with gender, and nothing to do with socioeconomic class. Your neighbor is simply the person around you at the grocery store, at the workplace, in the church, or outside of the church. Your neighbor is not someone who believes the same as you, looks the same as you, thinks the same as you, identifies the same as you, or acts the same as you. Your neighbor is the human being near you. And he said, you love that person, every person that is near you. You love them as much as you love 
yourself. Love is more concerned about the person than their orientation. Love sees, love sacrifices, love cares, love gives. 1 Corinthians 13, love is kind. Love is not proud. It doesn't boast. It is not rude. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't give up, and it doesn't rejoice in injustice. I think when we as believers look at the the parable of the Good Samaritan and the fact that Jesus died for those who opposed him, then we see as followers of Jesus, we are duty-bound to serve and love our community, especially those who disagree with us. Because that's where love is most seen. We love regardless of what they believe or how they identify. We love those, Jesus said, we love those who persecute us. See, the gospel of Christ is a gospel of grace, which says you're saved by faith through grace. And when, when you level the playing field that we all need the same amount of grace to be saved, then it removes the ideas of superiority It removes the self-righteousness or religious pride. It it lays all of that to waste because we all need the same amount of grace to be saved. Every person, whether they've received that grace or not, we all need or needed and still need because the grace that saves us is the grace that sustains us. And today, no matter how long you've been saved, you still need the grace of God as much then as now, and you need just as much grace as your transgender neighbor. And so we are commanded to love. Never commanded to judge. But we are commanded to love. And then here's the last word. The last word, speak. So repent, love, and then and speak. And here's what I mean by this. A couple of things. First is, let me give you the context. The context of this idea is that we speak to and not at. We speak with and not about. Because I think, if, if we're being honest, I think the church is really good at speaking to the issue, just not with the people. Right. We're really good at launching those social media grenades at the issue. I probably, one of the times I've been most grieved as a pastor, not because of our church necessarily, but because the church by and large was after the Supreme Court ruling and what I saw on social media. And you know what I was appalled at? I wasn't appalled at all the rainbow flags and, and all the, this is a great victory for the LGBT. I was appalled at people who profess the name of Jesus and the hate-filled speech that was being communicated and the judgment that was being levied and I thought, well, God, no wonder they don't come to our church. I wouldn't go either. I believe the same as you, and I wouldn't go either. And so I think that we, we speak to them. Um, we speak with them. Ephesians 4.15 gives us it's this idea of maturity that Paul is giving us, and he says, we will speak the truth in love. So you got to have love as your framework anytime you're going to deliver truth. If people have not experienced your love, they have no reason to entertain your truth. And so there's a lot of people, truth! Okay, where's the love? Jesus was full of grace and truth. It's the best definition, I think, of who Jesus was that John gives us in the first chapter of John when he says Jesus is full of grace and truth. Grace without truth is just sentimentality. And truth without grace is just fundamentalism. And neither of them are attractive without the other. Neither of them are helpful without the other. Neither of them are redemptive without the other. And if if you separate grace from truth, it cannot represent Jesus at all, no matter which way you separate it. It takes grace and truth to represent who Jesus was. He was 100% grace, 100% truth. He wasn't more grace than truth, more truth than grace. He was 100% grace. He was 100% truth. And the reason people would listen to Jesus' truth is because they experienced his love. And so I think we need to, we need to speak to and we need to speak with. I think the church has is, is kind of been over here for, uh, in, for a long time. We've kind of been on the alienation side of this. Like we alienate those who don't identify as the same as us. And now there's this other side of the church where we affirm those who identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual, etc. 
So there's these kind of polars, and then there's, there's this idea, in the middle, there's a lot of people that's like, well, I can't really affirm that, and, and, and I shouldn't alienate that. And so in the middle, I think, is where Jesus was, because Jesus was in the middle, and in the middle, he offered acceptance without affirmation and acceptance without alienation. So he said, whosoever will may come. He said, hey, I'm paying for everybody's tab. Matthew 7, if, if there's ever been an argument about sin, <laughs> Matthew 7 is what always comes out. In fact, it's one of those scriptures that everybody seems to know. And it says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, let's think about this. Let's look at this scripture just a minute because this is why people say, hey, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. So Think about this, because if you, if you judge me, you're going to be judged. So are you saying, if I don't judge you, I won't be judged? Then great, Jesus didn't need to die. If I just go the rest of my life and never judge anybody, then when I get to heaven, I'd be like, God, we're cool. No, I didn't accept you, but I didn't judge anybody, so you can't judge me because we have this law that Jesus said in Matthew 7, where as long as I don't judge, I can't be judged. Is that really what you think that means? I don't think Jesus was walking around in his Birkenstocks going, hey, dude, it's like totally legal in Colorado. Like, no worries, just don't judge anybody. <laughs> Woo! I don't think that's how Jesus lived. Right? In fact, Jesus said things that upset people. Jesus did tell the woman who was called in adultery, hey, go and don't sin anymore. Jesus said things like, wide is the gate to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to light or to life. In Matthew 22, he actually told a group of people, you're completely wrong, you don't know the scripture, and you don't know the power of God. And those were people who professed to be church people. In, in John 7, Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify against it that its works are evil. In other words, Jesus wasn't going around with his Birkenstocks on saying, hey, totally okay, Whatever you feel works for you. Totally good. No, Jesus said, I walked around and said, hey, that's sin. Hey, that's wrong. Hey, you don't need to do that. Hey, that doesn't work. Hey, that's against God's law. And he said, and people hate me for it. Remember, Jesus said, if they persecute me, in other words, let me say it another way. Hey, I've ticked some people off. And so for us to sit here and say, well, as long as we don't judge, everything's fine. That's not what that passage means. Here's what the passage means. When Jesus is saying don't judge, he's not saying you can't assess behavior. He's saying after your assessment of behavior, you can't let your assessment change the attitude of your heart towards them. He's saying it's okay to assess behavior. Jesus said it this way, and you can judge a tree by its fruit. So when we say, well, hey, he said not judge. No, no, Jesus actually tells us to judge. Paul tells us to judge. There's a lot of scriptures that say we need to judge some things. If you have kids, you kind of want to tell them, hey, we judge that to not be the best. It doesn't matter. Underage drinking. Hey, we judge that to not be the best. Pornography. Hey, we judge that to not be the best. So I think it's, Jesus tells us we can judge, but here's the thing. He's talking about this idea of superiority, inferiority, of assessment of heart and riding someone off. In other words, he's saying, after you assess their behavior, what happens next determines whether you're judging or not. If you're still embracing and still loving and still accepting and your attitude towards them hasn't changed because how you have viewed their behavior, then you are not judging. But if someone has behavior that is contrary to what you believe the standard of God is, and your attitude towards them changes and you become biased, then you have judged them. And so I think that's really what he's saying. It doesn't mean I can't assess a person's actions. Think about this. God forbid, but we go out of church and someone murders someone else in the parking lot. Are you saying, based on Matthew 7, we're supposed to jump back and say, oh my gosh, something happened. Well, did he murder him? I don't know. I'm not judging. Well, did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. But maybe, I don't know, maybe he deserved it. I don't know. I'm not saying it was murder. I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm not going to judge, so I won't be judged. <laughs> then a Christian could never sit on a jury. 
So it's not about the assessment of behavior. It's about the attitude of the heart after the assessment of behavior. Um, you know, I've, I've been told many times, well, Jesus never specifically said uh, homosexuality was wrong. And um, I don't, let me help you with that. Maybe that's the best thing I could say. I understand that there's no place where Jesus stood up and said, I say unto thee, homosexuality is wrong. I understand that. But Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us two things, actually. He clearly tells us what sexual morality is, right? So do I need to say murder is wrong, or do I need to tell you every other type of murder is wrong? Do I need to list all the ways people can be murdered, or can I just say murder is wrong? Right? So he tells us what sexual morality is, but listen, he also tells us what sexual immorality is. Let me show you this real quick. Matthew 19, 4, he said, have you read that they were um, created from the beginning? God made them male and female and said, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one. So they're no longer two, but they're one. And what God joins together, let no man separate. The only definition of marriage that is given in the Bible from God, from Jesus, from Paul, from all the way through is a man leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife and the two becoming one. There is no other relationship affirmed by Scripture. And when they're debating, and they're debating divorce, marriage, and morality. So they're asking, what's moral? What's marriage? That's the context. And Jesus said, here's marriage. And he gives us this box. He said, inside this box is moral relationship. Inside this box is moral sex. Inside this box is the only thing Scripture is going to affirm, and that is a man married to a wife. It's inside the box. That wasn't hate speech. That wasn't being biased. Jesus was grace and truth, full of love, dined with sinners. But when asked about morality and marriage, Jesus said, well, inside this box, this is marriage. That's the only thing he put in the box. It's the only option he gave. He could have given any option. He could have said anything he wanted, but that's all he put. And so with that, I think Jesus said, okay, here's moral marriage. Here's the moral sex. Here's the moral idea of God. Man married to a woman. Right? But then Jesus also talks about sexual immorality. <clears throat> Matthew 6, 17. Matthew 15, 17, it says, Do you see, oh, by the way, the disciples were in trouble because they had eaten corn without washing their hands. The Pharisees. I'd hate to go to that church. Like, we'd be in trouble because I guarantee you in Pathway Kids today, some kid's going to eat some goldfish and they didn't wash their hands. <laughs> they're going to be defiled. Anyway, so they're, they're saying, hey, they're defiled because they didn't wash their hands before they had corn on the cob. And, and Jesus says, do you see, he said, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I think that's biology. Verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and it's what comes out of the heart that defiles a person. Verse 19, for out of the heart, watch this list, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And those are what defile a person. Now, I know people have said, hey, Jesus never said homosexuality was wrong. Okay, but he did say sexual immorality is wrong. Can we agree on that? Yes. So I wonder what Jesus meant by sexual immorality. Because in this text, he didn't define it. So he must have assumed, just like I'm assuming if I say certain things, like if I say, hey, the love of God, you understand what the love of God is. Or if I say, hey, the Holy Spirit, you kind of have an idea of who the Holy Spirit is. So he must have understood, like, have you ever heard two doctors talk and they say things that we don't understand, but they understand? <laughs> or two lawyers, because they don't ever make sense. Right? That's why you had to have a lawyer, so you understand the other lawyer. Right? But they use terms that they both know, even if we don't know the terms. So when Jesus gives a term, if he doesn't explain the terminology, then it's because it would have been commonly accepted by the audience as understanding what that term meant. Are you with me? So what was the culture, custom, and audience? Well, Jewish culture under Jewish law, and he's talking to the Pharisees who embraced the law of Moses. So when Jesus says, 
adultery, he doesn't have to say. Now, let me explain what adultery is. It's basically someone having, you know, people are married and one of them has sex with someone else. That's going to be adultery. Or someone has sex with a married person. That's adultery. He didn't sit down and say, just so we are all clear on what adultery is, I want you all to understand what I'm saying by adultery. And then he said, just so we understand what slander is, I want you to understand slander. Or just so you understand what murder is, I want, you, I want to explain what murder means. It means when someone takes the life of another person. So he didn't explain any of these terms. Why didn't he explain them? Oh, because the audience would have known exactly what he was talking about because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in Jewish culture. Jews were under the law. And when Jewish, Jesus says all of these terms, all of these terms are explicitly identified and defined in the law of God. And so when Jesus says sexual immorality is bad, it defiles you, he was referencing, everyone would have known this, he was referencing Leviticus 18. In Leviticus 18, it lists six forms of sexual immorality. So Jesus didn't need to list all the ways you could be sexually immoral because they're already listed. If I said, hey, the law of double jeopardy, then if you've studied whatever we, whenever we study that, <laughs> Somewhere we study that. Then you know someone that's tried and found not innocent can't be tried for the same crime. I don't have to explain the term because we know legally what the term means. Jesus didn't have to explain sexual immorality because everyone he was talking to would have used the same definition he was implying, which was Leviticus 18, which says that here, the, here is how you can be sexually immoral. Sexual immorality is incest, adultery, bestiality, pedophilia, fornication, and homosexuality. They're all listed there, and Jesus was referencing the law. We need to understand that in the law of God, there's the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law of God. And we need to understand what stops at the cross and what continues through it. Because the cross didn't do away with the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. God's law is going to stand forever. So Jesus wasn't doing away with Leviticus 18. He was referencing the Leviticus 18. Because he's talking about what defiles us. Well, it's what comes out of our heart. What comes out of our heart? Well, all these things. And so you need to understand that Jesus is making this point, and to him it's very clear. And at the cross, what stopped at the cross? The ceremonial law. All the animal sacrifices stopped at the cross, right? Sacrificing your goat, your cow, your pigeon, your turtle doves, your partridge in a pear tree, all of that stops at the cross, but what passed through the cross? The moral law of God. God has never changed his mind about what's moral. And we know that because all throughout the New Testament, it says murder's wrong, adultery's wrong, homosexuality's wrong, right? Stealing's wrong. All these things are wrong. Why? Because it passed. God didn't change his moral standard. But Jesus was the last sacrifice, so we don't need... Jesus was the offering, and now we're living sacrifices, so now we're the offering, not our, not our turtle dove. Are you with me? And so here's how Jesus loved, by the way. Jesus loved by calling sin, sin, and then dying for it. He didn't love by not calling sin, sin. He didn't love by saying, hey, you can do whatever you want to do, because that's not really love at all. I love my kids so much, I tell them what's going to lead to pain and what's going to lead to life. And I think probably most of you do the same. And Jesus loved us so much, he said, hey, that's sin that's going to lead to death. Now I'm going to go die for it. And then I'm going to ask you to move away from sin. And I'm going to remove condemnation so you can. And then I'm going to tell you, if you choose not to, I'll still always love you. Jesus gave clarity about righteousness and displayed compassion by giving up his life for those who weren't righteous. So did Jesus ever preach against homosexuality? Jesus typically didn't preach against sin at all. He preached against religion. Jesus was pro-grace and righteousness. And Jesus believed that if the Holy Spirit entered a person, something's going to change. So Jesus didn't go around preaching against anything. But Jesus defines 
what was moral sex, and he defined what was immoral sex. And that was very clear. Very clear. That's not my opinion. That was his. That's the word. That's, That's red letters. And then we come to this idea of the Bible. In the Bible, when people are talking about homosexuality, they reference the big six. Three Old Testament passages, three New Testament passages. Genesis 14, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6. Three Old Testament, three New Testament. And I've read, I've seen books, I haven't read them all, but I've read excerpts and listened to interviews. And, and, and what it seems to be to me is, well, if we can disprove these six references, then we give credence for this lifestyle. And, and, you know, and I've even heard people, well, God only, you know, the Bible only talks about it six times. Well, how many times does God need to say it? You know, one thing as a parent, you start working with your kids on, it's called first time obedience. Right? Like dad really only need, like once I say, this is what we're doing, dad's not going to change his mind. If it's bedtime, it's bedtime. And when I say it's bedtime, that means we turn off what we're doing, we get ready for bed, we meet in the living room for prayer. That's what bedtime means at our house. And I don't need to say it more than once because you've lived in this house all your life. And this is how we do life. Bedtime. Turn it off, put it up, change your clothes, living room for prayer. Bedtime. That's what it means. I don't need to say, hey, it's bedtime. Hey, it's bedtime. Hey, it's bedtime. Hey, stop that. It's bedtime. Stop. Go change. It's bedtime. Hey, in the living room, it's bedtime. No, it's bedtime. That's what it means. (laughs) So how many times God need to say it? And I listened to this excerpt. It was really well done. Very smart individual. Very smart individuals. And they took these six passages. And with such grace, in a way, they eloquently separated the passages from each other, separated the authors from each other, separated the books from each other, separated the cultures from all of that, separated God from all of it, and then disproved the scripture and came to the interpreters really messed these passages up, and none of these actually mean homosexuality is wrong. And I listened to that. I thought, man, this is so well presented. This guy has such a nice voice. God, this guy's really smart. Wow, this is incredibly demonic. <laughs> well, think about it. What other force out there would dismantle the word of God? Is that not what Jesus... Think about Satan. Jesus, throw yourself down off this place because it's written... Turn this stone into bread because it's written. I mean, Satan's been manipulating the word of God for a long time. And I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, that's really good. Because, see, what I would teach you and any responsible, I'm not a theologian, by the way, but any responsible theologian would teach you that the Bible is one book with one author and has to be studied in a context where it interprets itself. And the Bible always interprets itself. And so it's not 66 books and 66 authors and all these different cultures and all these different times. No, it's one God, one Holy Spirit, penned every word through the hands of 66 different, or not 66, but you understand, different authors. I think it was 49 different authors. And so, so you, have to, you have to understand that. And so here's what I'm saying is, that I think, yeah, if, if you, but here's the Pandora's box because the people that were doing this were believers who'd embrace homosexuality. Therefore, they're disproving that the Bible speaks against homosexuality in order to be right before God in the lifestyle they've chosen. And what I would say to them is okay, you have eloquently broken these scriptures down and convinced us that the interpreters and translators were wrong. My question is, okay, what else is wrong? Because when you undermine the authority of God's word, it's all or none. So is murder really wrong? I don't know. Maybe we need to study that one out. Because I bet we could find someone on death row that could really make an argument for it not being wrong. Is adultery really wrong? I'm not sure. 
Do you see what I'm saying? Are we really supposed to love our neighbor? Is that really right? Because maybe the translators missed it on that. I mean, Jesus only said it one time. And so I wonder what's more plausible. Is it more plausible that after thousands of years of studying Scripture, we finally understand that God said this was okay? Or better yet, we don't understand He said out of 31,109 verses, there is not one verse that affirms any other sexual relationship than a husband and a wife. So you can't find any, any, there is no place in Scripture where any writer There is no scripture that affirms any sexual relationship other than husband and wife. There are six that explicitly speak against homosexuality as being wrong, not being God's best. And there are tons about sexual immorality. And then there's God defining what marriage is, Jesus defining what marriage is, Paul defining what marriage is. So there's, there's, there's all affirmation in the world for a husband married to a wife. There's all affirmation in the world of what sexual, sexual morality is. There's not one affirmation whatsoever for any sexual relationship or any marriage outside of what we've already discussed. So is it more plausible, do you think, that after thousands of years, we finally decided the Bible's actually silent on this issue? Or is it more plausible after thousands of years, we finally found a way to manipulate it into what we want? And what is more human nature when you study human history? You see, here's what we need to understand. God's word is not descriptive, it's prescriptive. God's word is not, this is sin, this is sin, this is sin, this is sin. I'm a mean God, I don't want you to have fun. God's word is a prescription for what he wants us to have. You know, when you buy a new car, they give you this thing called an owner's manual. And we don't read it, we put it in the glove box. But if you read that owner's manual, they're going to say, hey, change your air filter every 50,000 miles or whatever it is. Change your oil every 4,000, 5,000, or 3,000 miles, depending on the car. Change your uh, oil using this kind of oil. Make sure your tires are inflated to this level. Flush your radiator. Service your fuel system. And it's going to have all these things. And what they're saying is, because we're the creator and this is the creation, here's a prescription for how how you live with the creation without crashing it without destroying it. And God, when he always speaks, God speaks in the context of I'm the creator, you're the creation. And here is the prescription for shalom, for peace, for rest, for prosperity, to see my grace, power, and goodness. Here's the prescription for it. Now, if you go outside of that prescription, you can't get to what I want for you. Because I'm the creator and I built the car. And if you don't check the tire pressure and you don't change the oil... Have you ever seen a car where they forgot to change the oil? You pull the plug, if if the motor doesn't blow up, you pull the plug and it's like syrup dripping out. It's because it's got all those fragments in it, right? It's nasty. Why? Because the creator didn't consult the, 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 the creation, the operator of the creation didn't consult the creator on how to operate the creation. So they blew up the engine. And God's saying, hey, I'm going to write you not a description of what's wrong, but I'm going to offer you a description of how to get to the shalom, the peace, the rest, the goodness, the prosperity, the hope. I'm going to, I'm going to get you to the joy that I've set before you. I'm going to write you a prescription on how to get there. Now, you go outside of that, I have no guarantees. And so you need to understand this, how, this how God addresses it. Let me talk about the idea of human desire really quick. Because when I'm talking to people on this subject, and I've talked to a lot, I have friends. I have, I have friends that are openly gay. I have friends that um, have chosen a celibate lifestyle because they feel like that their natural desires are against the standard of God. So I have, I've worked with and have friends from different um, perspectives on this issue. And so to me, they're people. That's why I said they're people. Because when you say, what do you think about them? I see the faces and I think they're people. They're my friends. And, and when you hear someone and they're making an argument for this, especially as a believer, because that's really where my voice is, the church. People that don't name the name of Christ, obviously they're going to do things that are contrary to God's word. We'd be shocked if they didn't. <laughs> If you will name the name of Christ, this is now an issue. And and I hear this, well, these are my desires, and I think God gave me these desires, and I think God would want me to experience love, and I think God would want me to 
be happy and I think God would want me to have somebody. And, and you know what I hear a lot of? I think God would want me. I have, I want, I need, I am. You know what I don't hear a lot of? God said. And, and I kind of think the issue may not be sin, it may be surrender. Because the, the cause of Christ, the cross of Christ, is a place where we come and surrender everything we want, every desire we have, for what God says is true. And I think for us to say, well, because I have these desires, this must be what's right for me. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but has anyone in this room ever desired something that went against the word of God? And if one hand didn't go up, you're a liar and Revelation says you're going to burn in hell. So, (laughs) right? There's not a believer I've ever met that at some time in their life, if not presently in the past, had desired something that was contrary to to the standard of God. I've sat in rooms with I've sat in room with people that they desired sexual encounter after sexual encounter with as many different people as they could have sexual encounter, and that was their desire. In fact, they literally could not have sex with the same person twice. I've sat in rooms with people that desired to look at pornography. I've sat in rooms with people that desired to drink too much. I've sat in rooms with people that desired narcotics. I've sat many times at a restaurant and desired chocolate cake. There's a lot of people who have desires that are contrary to the word of God. And here's what James chapter one says about that. Verse 13, it says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me for God can't be tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt. But it was this, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own desire. And then it says, and their desire gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. Here's the truth of the Bible from start to finish. Let me give you the whole narrative. Human desire leads you away from God and toward death. And that is why Jesus came. Because if left to ourselves and our own desires... We will never move toward God. We will move away from Him. We will move towards sin. We will move towards death. And so to say, well, because I have this desire, this is God's plan for me. Well, I don't think God's plan for someone is pornography. I don't think God's plan for someone is pedophilia. I don't think God's plan for someone is bestiality. I don't think God's plan for someone is adultery. I don't think God's plan for someone is gluttony. And, and then to go farther and say, well, I'm saved, but I still have this desire. Real quick, let's have some fun. Are you up for it? Yeah. Who, let's say, I don't know, in the last, we'll say a year. Who in this room in the last year, since being a believer, you have desired something that went against God's standard? I got my hand up. The rest of you are lying and you will burn in hell. I'm not trying to be funny. I wish God would take my desire for sugar away because it's not good for you. It like kills you and stuff. Oh, it tastes so good. (laughs) I'm not making light of this. And listen, I understand there's a big difference in desiring chocolate cake and desiring a sexual relationship with someone. I understand there's a huge difference in that. I'm just making the point that what the Bible says is when it comes to living the life God's called us to, one thing we cannot trust is our own desires because our own desires will never lead us to the righteousness of God. And if our own desires could have led us to the righteousness of God, Jesus would not have come at all. He wouldn't have needed to. We'd have found him on our own. In Romans chapter one, I'm not gonna to read the whole text, but you can read it in Romans chapter one. It says that we should have known God because we've seen his creation. So there's not an excuse to not acknowledge God. But it said, even having known God, they chose to move away from him. <clears throat> and, and it says they chose the creation instead of the creator. It, cho- it says they chose the lie instead of the truth. And then it says, so God gave them up to their own desires. And it says that men exchanged a natural relationship, sexual, 
for an unnatural and begin having sex with other men. And women exchange a natural. So if the creator says this is natural and this is unnatural, do we really need to debate what he thinks the prescription the best is? Right Back to the car. There's a natural way to operate the automobile. And then there's driving it like the Fast and the Furious. That's unnatural. Right? Strip gears, burn the clutch if you don't kill yourself and wreck it. Right? And so, so if, if the creator says, hey, it's natural for a woman to have sex with a man and a man to have sex with a woman. And then he says, but, but because, because they went after the creation instead of the creator and because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, he gave them up to their desires, not his desire for them. And when they were given up to their desires, they exchanged what naturally God had created for something that wasn't what God had created. And it describes homosexual, sexu- or homosexual relationships. And so here's, here's what Romans 1 tells us that fallen humans do. And we're all guilty of this, every one of us. Number one, all of us in here at some time have chosen the creation over the creator. Because you cannot sin without choosing the creation over the creator. You do understand that, right? Yeah. You cannot sin if you don't see. And here's what, all the creation, like if you've ever had good Tex-Mex, it's supposed to be a worshipful experience. If you ever had good chocolate cake, like chocolate on chocolate cake with chocolate. Like death by chocolate cake. With whole milk, not skinny milk. I've never wanted milk from a skinny cow. I want fat cows giving me fat milk. I want to scrape the cream off. And that's a worshipful experience. Some of you know what I'm saying, right? Like this is supposed to make me say, God, you are so good. You are so good. But here's what happens. God created sex. God created marriage. God created people. God created all these wonderful things in creation. But here's what we do. We say, God, I want the stuff away from you. I want the blessing away from you. I want the money away from you. I want the position away from you. I want the substance away from you. I want the relationship away from you. And and this is fallen creation. We always choose the creation of the creator. Is this not what Adam and Eve did? And then we exchange the truth of God for a lie. What's the lie? That we know better than God. By the way, you can't sin if you don't believe, or whether omission or not. Sin in itself is treason to say, I know better. In this, back to the garden, isn't this kind of what Adam and Eve bit into? Because <laughs> God said, you eat this fruit, they're going to die. They're like, well, now that we've heard the other side, it was a pretty compelling argument too. That we're going to be like God and have this wisdom and this understanding and be enlightened. I think because the fall of man cost us spiritual enlightenment, we're always trying to find it. We're just trying to find it without God. And so Adam and Eve, the truth of God for a lie. We know better than God. God said we're going to die if we eat this, but now that we've heard the argument, we're not really going to die, it's going to be okay. And so here's what he said. And then when we do that, we die. Do you know why we die? Because God says, well, when you choose the creation over me and you choose a lie over truth, then I'll give you up to whatever you want. It's called the passive judgment of God. See, we we think of judgment in terms of the active judgment of God. Oh, God's going to make them pay. Oh, God's going to get them. He doesn't have to. Sin and death are the grim reaper. And God's like, hey, when you choose the creator and you choose the, ch- and you choose the truth, you want the creator and the truth, I step in, grace, protection. I give my angels charge over you. I keep you so that nothing is lost and no one is lost. I hold you safe in my hand. But when you ask me to step aside and you decide you know more than me, there's not a place for me. I step back and say, hey, you can have it your way. Welcome Burger King. And when I say, Welcome, welcome and have it your way. I remove my hands and the only hands that are left are sin and death. So it's just passive judgment. Right? That's why Jesus said, this world is already judged. I came to offer it grace.
see, the whole idea of this relationship with Jesus is that it begins by him making us a new creation. The whole idea is it's supposed to change our desires. Now, let me say this first of all. I know Christians who are devout Christians who still struggle with same-sex attraction to this day. I also know Christians who are devout Christians who study, who struggle with pornography to the same day. See, the difference is struggling with and embracing. Every believer is going to struggle with sin at some point in our lives. And most of us are going to struggle here and there for the rest of our lives. The difference is whether I embrace it or whether I fight with it. Men are going to be tempted to have affairs. Women are going to be tempted to have affairs. The difference is, are they tempted and they fight with it, or do they have it? And people are going to struggle with the attractions that they have and with the desires they have. And the difference is, do I embrace it and justify it, or do I agree with God's standard and say, hey, this is where I'm at, but this isn't where I need to be, and God and I are going to wrestle this out. Because the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. And when you put the Holy Spirit in fallen flesh, it cannot stay the same. In fact, Paul said it this way, Ephesians 4.22, he said, put off your old self. Notice he didn't say God will put off your old self. Ephesians 4.22 says, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on your new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Paul's telling them to do this. Like I have to make a decision. Okay, I'm putting off that set of desires and I'm going to hold to these. I'm putting that off. I'm going to try to put this on. There's a, there's a part that I'm involved in. And this is, I have access to this new self because of the cross and because of the tomb. And so to sit over here and say, well, I don't have to change because it's just the way that I am and God understands that. I think God understands the way that you are. I, had a, I was talking to a person one time and he said, he was struggling with homosexuality and he said, Pastor, he said, I, I just feel like I was born this way. And I got in trouble for what I said, but I'll tell you what I said. <laughs> That's a good intro, isn't it? I said, yeah, you were born that way. Absolutely. I said, That's why you have to be born again. We were all born broken. We were all born with corrupt desires. We were all born with, with issues. We were all born with desires and, and, and things that would lead us away from the design of God, away from the plan of God, away from the truth of God. We were all born broken, and, and brokenness looks like a lot of different things in a lot of different lives. So yeah, you were born that way. Now let's put off the old man and put on the new man. Let's fight the good fight. The same way this one fights against pornography, let's fight against that because the law of God tells us that that's not God's best plan. That's not his prescription. There's no place in the Bible that affirms that as being good at all. Because the whole idea is that when God comes to <laughs> Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Hey, salvation means something has to die. I'm crucified with him. If you got saved and you didn't die, you didn't get saved. <laughs> I'm crucified with Christ. And now I live and he lives in me. And I live by the faith of the son of God, the one who gave himself for me. There is no salvation without us going to the cross of Christ and crucifying what is contrary to him and putting on what he now offers us and becoming a new creation and be regenerated spirit, soul, and body. So how should we respond? Well, repent. They're people. Let's invite them to dinner. And we're not going to invite them to dinner to change them. We're going to invite them to dinner to love them because we're going to love our neighbor. And then when they've experienced our love, let's make sure we know what truth is. And when there's an opportunity, let's share truth not to be right, not to judge, 
not to criticize, but let's share truth to, to throw a lifeline of here's what God's prescriptive plan for the best life you can live is. So that brings us to the end. And here's what I want to say. If you're in this room and you disagree with everything that I said, I want you to know something. I'm totally okay with it. No, I, I won't change anything that I said, but I'm okay if you don't agree and there's still a place for you here and you're still welcome here and I still love you and I hope that you'll still come. And if anyone judges you or treats you as less than because of your identification or values, I'll kick them out. Because we want you here. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me?